guest this month is John West Burnham. John is a seminal thinker in the field of educational leadership and management. In fact, I'd go so far as to say few school leaders in the UK have not been influenced by his work. And as always, we're delighted to be linked with Plymouth Marjon University. My view is that our professional lives have spanned an incredible period of educational history. And I would really just like to pursue with you, how do you believe that leadership in schools has evolved through that period? That's fascinating. Yes, I'll join you in that conversation because I think that um, I've reflected recently that probably you and I were most involved at one of the very best times in terms of leadership development and growth and so on, and that it's all disappeared. And this is classically British, that we had a period of time of real creativity, world leadership, innovation, all really powerful things that everybody looks for. And then very quickly, really, it, it, it all disappeared. The National College is a case in point. You know, that was £30 million worth of investment, which I think was lost on a signature by Gove um, in terms of closing it down and no in notion of capturing it for posterity, no notion of the intellectual capital it, it had, no real ambition to keep the resources available. And that's very much how I see the time, mm. that we had all sorts of good things going on. And then gradually they've been eroded away and replaced by an alternative view of the world, which has been less than successful. You see, going back to that time, I mean, obviously, we our, our paths have crossed and recrossed over the years. And I remember feeling, incre- this sounds almost puerile, but feeling incredibly excited coming into the National College as they were knocking down the rally bicycle works on the left as you drove in. And getting involved in that early headship program, New Visions, yeah. that to me seemed, a, it, I would say it's one of the most exciting programs I've ever been involved. It, it was described by the chief exec as the jewel in the college's crown. And I was very blessed to work with two other people in, in managing the design and delivery of the project over two or three years. And it was some of the best work I've ever done, mm-hmm. both in terms of intellectual excitement but also in terms of real impact in terms of seeing people change in the course of the time and it would it, it, it literally went from the three of us working collaboratively to um, a, a head teacher being appointed without us being referred to or consulted and the funding was withdrawn and the whole thing was lost completely you know, no hint of any kind of salvage work in the debris and that, for me, was one of the great letdowns of, you know, here's a, a real sign of change. Yes. That the decade that I refuse to call the noughties um, was a period of real change and development. And then all of a sudden, the change of culture, the change of ideology led to a huge amount of loss, mm-hmm. which has not yet been really been replaced because the capacity has simply left the system. and also. The culture has changed so much because of academization and so on. You see, if we go back to New Vision, and I don't simply want to take a historical view, to me, the essence and core 
of that program was encouraging teachers in the early phase of their headship to really engage with vision and values yeah. and then work out from those. Is that a fair fair view? Oh, totally. That's where uh, I mean, it was so such a good experience for me because that's what that's my that's my job is vision and values. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. how I see things developing. The constant taking us back to the principles, having real respect for our client base. I think. But also talking, developing a language, not just talking a language, developing a language, which took a lot of really good academic work and applied it in a way that made a difference for um, school leaders. And the, the feedback, and you will have experienced it yourself, from these regular meetings where you start off with, where are we since last we met? Mm. Those sessions were just incredible. You know, the yes. things that people were coping with and then the, the way that they were using the, the program as a way of managing their own personal development and growth, as well as working on their school. I, I, to me, it became the springboard, virtually, most of what I did in the next 15 or 16 years. That's great to hear, because uh, I felt in, instinctively and also empirically that it was something that was worth um, keeping. And I actually tried, when I didn't initiate it, but we... A group of us who were working had been with the college since before it was built. Uh, we talked speculatively about mm. actually buying the program from the college or from the department as it became. Mm. And they just wouldn't talk to us. There was no. just no hint of no. any possibility of it being allowed to live. I remember after it was put out to external providers talking to one of the facilitators I'd known on the program. Uh, I said, how, how is it with the private provider? And he said, well, the venue wasn't great, and it really wasn't helped when somebody threw a piano out of an upstairs window. But uh, <laughs> apart, from <that. laughs> apart from that, it was great. But you yeah. see, I took a lot of that thinking forward when I moved on with the Institute of Education and mm. moved into the delivery of their MA in leadership. So the legacy did continue, certainly in my thinking, and practice. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I get people still coming up to me and saying, you know, you won't remember me, but, and it, it was very popular, and there were all sorts of evidence, but I, I suppose, Matt, it's classic of the way that the profession works in this country, is that on the one hand, it's very top-down and controlling and so on, and then on the other hand, it's absolutely laissez-faire. And things in, in that kind of culture of tension, then things yeah. get lost. And therefore, your work was really powerful in, in terms of the impact of, the, of in London. But then it, that didn't happen elsewhere, and there was no capacity for it to happen elsewhere because the program was very expensive. There's no two ways about it. You know mm-hmm. that the if you think about the, there were three of us who actually ran the thing, and then there were up to 15 um, part-timers, you know, all being paid well at a good rate. It was um, yeah. it was a very expensive program, and that's why it went so quickly. Yeah. But, of course, this sat as the extension or sat on top of, of things like MPQH, which seemed to be operating in a very different mode. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, it was a, that's part of the tension, is that there was a, an element of, we need to be prescriptive, and there was still a degree of that. When, in fact, we were saying basically at the end of each session, what, how do we work next time? And getting feedback nonstop, yeah. and 
And that's why we had so many meetings with the, um, the, the facilitators, because we got such rich feedback from them. And with, we, we took it seriously. But, mm. but in, in fact, there was um, no real investment in terms of an overarching view in which these things could be set. And so NPQH was very much the department's view of how the world should be. And of course, they're still doing it now. Yes. Um, in, in very different format. But in many ways, the NPQs are a reflection of how the college generated a, a model, which has then been sustained, but in denial of its history. That's a fascinating point. But if we fast forward to really the coalition government, the coming of there where Gove accelerates the, uh, yeah. the the development of the of, of um, academies. And I have a view around what has happened with the leadership within that process. And I think it may be at variance with yourself, and I'd like to explore it. My view is that from that, um, within a lot of multi-academy trusts, the development of a managerial cult was extended. Now, I know with the ones you work with, you kept going with that leadership. Do you think my view is uh, uh, is is slanted? No, no, I think you're right. I think uh, um, people often say to me, because I, I, I'm fairly robust in promoting academies as a model, assuming that they have they meet certain criteria. And that's what the, that's the issue in terms of the values that underpin their practice. But... Um, I always say that there are good and bad mats as there were good and bad LAs. You know, we must not suddenly pretend that we can have a binary divide across the entire profession of goodies and baddies no. because people cross backwards and forwards. At their best, mats are very powerful indeed. And I, I, got, um, I had a, a board meeting on Monday morning. I've got another board meeting of, of, of another mat this afternoon. And they... They are very complicated things, but they are working, in my experience, very well. I have experience, and I can't talk about it. I'm not allowed to. No. I had one major negative experience, which um, really was the very worst of managerialism. Yeah, and, the, and the thing is that there was, because there was no model of what a CEO should look like, and they're only just beginning to start work on that now, it hasn't even, you know, it's moving into consultation phase. And the, that's been done by the um, stakeholder groups and so on. But that it, there was no accountability for the CEOs and the, there was no inspection of mats. And therefore yeah. it was Liberty Hall. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's, again, bizarre because that essentially was what Michael Gove was looking for, was to have a non-controlling environment in which the market played to optimum effect. And in fact, of course, what was created was a very centralised managerial culture in order to respond to the demands for performativity. And so performativity and managerialism actually stalked the land in a way that would have been very difficult before they came through with government policy. With the coming of the mat, you've got the role of the chief executive. And I have done work with mats where some chief executives have been paid eye-watering sums to basically run and control, and I'd use that word advisedly, yeah. multi-academy trust. I'm interested at the moment in how the flow of that leadership works through the organisation from the CEO. Now, one I worked with was basically marketing itself 
as um, I, I'm going to name the name because it, it's, uh, it's not a derogatory comment, but the Harris Federation was offering the basically Harris in a box yeah. and you join them and the box arrived with the, the policies and the direction. But what I'm interested in is the extent to which the CEO encourages the local head, local leader to be more than a manager or indeed constrains them. I think that's really interesting and important. And there is a culture of managerialism, which actually um, is a very comfortable place to be in the sense that somebody's going to take all, all the critical decisions for me. Somebody's going to justify my existence. Somebody's going to tell me how much I'm going to be paid, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that, I think, is one of, again, goes back to this basic issue of the, the MAT and the CEO were never really conceptualized at government level because Michael Gove simply wanted them to let the market reign, essentially, and that, therefore, it was almost Liberty Hall. And uh, I, I've just been writing something, um, I'm doing this work in Ireland about policies that don't work and, and just looking back on the um, pupil premium. Uh, yes. So, you know, one of the very positive um, policies that came out of the period we're talking about. And, of course, that was just a tokenistic thing in a part of the coalition formation whereby the Liberals put their cards on the table and said, one thing that we can make a difference to in this country is, is children in poverty and disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And they got the money because the government was so determined that they could set up a coalition. And in, and interestingly, that has survived because I, I think mainly because nobody dare touch it. I think it's about three billion pounds now. The, the, Goodness, as much as that. Oh, it's huge. It, well, it, it's a th- you know well over a thousand for every primary child yeah. and nine hundred for every secondary. So it's a lot of money. Yeah. And again, they say here comes the money from central government and basically totally available in the sense of, um, you know, you do with this what you wish. Mm. And at the same time, setting up the Education Endowment Foundation to provide the intellectual research base for the work of Pupil Premium. And then suddenly you find that, that, that the schools are spending all their premium money on the, their deficit or that they are spending yeah. it across the whole school. And, of course, the contentious issue was the TAs and class size where the evidence was very clear that in neither case was there any impact in terms of closing the gap. And yet, heads continued to do it, and and nobody was there to tell them that actually, this is dumb. You're putting several tens of thousands of pounds a year into strategies which don't work. Reducing class size will not make the difference, and having untrained TAs will not make a difference. And therefore, we had this bizarre notion of, on the one hand, laissez-faire, I trust you. And on the other hand, oh, by the way, here are the controls that you have to work under. And, and Michael Gove was very skilled at getting that balance. And certainly at the various conferences that he spoke at in the, the early days of his governance, um, he was extremely um, sophisticated in how he put this model across, which a significant number of head teachers, never mind heads of maths, Bought into. I was going to say, uh, what was interesting was those who used it powerfully, but those who subverted the money into some very strange uh, activities. But yeah. if, you, if you come, I mean, a lot of that research on uh, the impact of teaching assistants 
was um, was actually, I think, undertaken by the Institute of Education at the time. At least two major pieces of work were. Yeah. Um, but it was not what the world was wanting to hear, was it, by any means? No. That's right. Absolutely. And, and, and that's, it was really, I mean, people were furious about it all and so on. And the, um, I was just checking the teaching and learning and toolkit this morning, and they're still there. They've now risen up in terms of impact because the, the system has learned a lesson. Mm-hmm. It's taken 20 years to get it embedded is the notion that the TAs are fabulous if you give them professional support and training. Yes. And then you've got really powerful resource if you can deploy it effectively. But, of course, I can remember at one conference in the very early days uh, hearing a conversation between two teachers and one was saying to the other, I still don't talk to my TA because I don't know what to talk about. And you get the image of this this adult in the classroom being ignored all day. You know, and simply because there was no policy, there was no strategy, there was no best practice in terms of how do we use the, this incredible resource. Yeah. And, and that for me is symbolic of the cultural divide going right the way back, that on the one hand, there's been some really powerful stuff, the National College, Preston Art and so on. And then on the other side, there's real draconian control. And then very, very strange things like the recently departed Minister of Education and his obsession with phonics and with um, knowledge. And really very you know, unusual for a minister to get that closely involved and, and that prescriptively involved. You're talking about um, Nick Gibb here, are you? Yes. Yeah. Than- I mean, he lasted for 12 years. And the, the thing that maybe this is where I, I'm in some way in a significant psychological or philosophical block and dead end. The system doesn't seem to grasp in any way, shape or form that actually the the gap has not closed. It's actually widened in secondary schools. And therefore, everything else, I mean, occasionally I want to say to some of your former colleagues at the Institute and to others and say, hang on a minute, all this work on school improvement, all this research into what makes schools better places and leadership and so on, actually in this country has come to nothing because it's going to take us 50 years to close the gap on current progress. And therefore, school improvement in this country means essentially polishing up the family silver rather yeah. than saying we need to sell the silver in, in, in order to make a difference. I'm not quite sure about that one. But I don't know. I think that's a, a powerful metaphor. But if we if we backtrack now and we look at a lot of the materials that we were working with, so much of that was it, it, it came from a business. A lot of it came from a business model. And that continued. I wonder who are the writers now who are making the running? It's really interesting. Um, I was at a, well, a virtual conference with my Irish work, and Andy Hargreaves came in virtually to speak. And he is you know, an outstanding academic. He's a highly effective speaker and researcher and so on. And I've met him on several occasions. We don't always... I mean, it happened to always hit it off, so let's not go there. But, but basically, he he has really powerful ideas. But you, you say you had a history with Michael Fuller of producing all of this stuff, and yet in in Britain or certainly in England, it hasn't worked at all. You know, mm-hmm. People haven't bought into your models. People haven't adopted your models. Everybody loves Michael Fuller and you know listens to him and and so on. 
But in fact, the reality is that much of the academic work has been done by all sorts of distinguished people at Nottingham and, and London and so on, actually ignores the basic fact that in spite of all this resource, all this energy and so on, that our system is stagnant, if not actually going backwards, which is a very hard message to get across because in fairness, if you say that to a group of head teachers, many of them are working their socks off. Yes. And, and I'm always aware of just you know, how careful one has to be in terms of you know, being offensive to very skilled and highly motivated and morally focused um, school leaders. But at the same time, when the Institute for uh, one of the Institute, one of the think tanks, uh, yes, policy people, when they say it's going to take 50 years to close the gap and maybe even 500 years to close the gap on current rates, then you really say, well, what on earth have we been doing for the past 25 years mm-hmm. or so? And the answer is having a good time, but not actually addressing the issue that. We have had generation after generation of children go through where, um, what is it now, a third of the young people who were being entered for GCSEs had a reading age of nine. Mm. And the, the GCSE exam has a reading age of 15. And that, Max, is where I, I, I find I'm increasingly moving, is to the notion that actually schools just need to keep topping themselves up, the real change is, has got to come in across the community, has got to become with the family and with the individual learner. Yeah. And that you know, all the focus on schools is simply misplaced because, in fact, the, the evidence for me is, is quite unequivocal, which is that if you get the family right and you get poverty sorted out and you get social class out of the way, and you build cultural capital, mm. then you'll find that we are actually a high-performing education system. Yes. Yeah. Which at the moment we're not. No, and that message has been uh, around for a very long time, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it goes back 20 years, people saying, actually, the impact of the school is li- limited to about 20 or 30%. Yeah. But this was very much the message of people like Charles de Forge. Yes. Oh, I mean, his work on the family, uh, absolutely. And I mean, and he was highly respected, highly um, very powerful voice, indeed, very strong voice. Mm. And yet he, he went the same way as, as we all did. And I did quite a lot of work with him. And he was a really good man. He, he really it was intellectually very tough. He was a hard-edged physicist, as he loved to say. And yet he said that the family is three times, no, yes, that's right, three times more significant yeah. than the school, and therefore focus on the family. Yeah. And it, I've just been writing something, and just look at Sure Start, and it, just, it Sure Start just disintegrated. Yes, yes. And so did Every Child Matters, because Every Child Matters was an amazing example of how the Treasury became involved. In saying economically, we need to build up a more sophisticated workforce. We need a better educated workforce. We need to get rid of poverty to get the economy working properly, and so on. And I mean, that was 2007, mm. and it had disappeared by 2009. Just gone. All the posters, all of the the, the five key principles, 
all disappeared because it um, had no ownership and therefore education was taken over by Michael Gove and not sustained by Ed Balls, basically. No, no. Um, you see, um, I have a small... We have a small legacy, not massive, so I'm not looking for people to write in with begging letters. But we invested it, and I went last Friday to a seminar on the investment. I thought I ought to go and see what they were doing with the money. And I was quite staggered by three speakers from massive investment funds who were saying, well, actually, we look at the balance sheets, but increasingly we are involved with uh, ESG, environmental social governance. And if we don't find the environmental and social governance is uh, in line with our principles, then we don't mm. put the money there. And they were quoting examples of people who'd strayed from the pathway and were doing things which were exploitative. And they just cut the funding from these. Now, I'm, yeah. I'm, I was sort of sat there with my, my brain going around thinking, what would happen if we began to apply more of this sort of uh, ESG kind of thinking in our assessment of schools? This would be a remarkable turnaround. Yeah, absolutely. That's, but that's, if you pardon the phrase, that's a paradigm shift. Yes, it is. And paradigm shifts are very difficult to manage because they require such total abandonment of the historical comfort zones and into a very different world. And the last book I published last year, Clipping Schools, we say very robustly there that, mm. in fact, you know, you've got to actually, there is a thing of the classic Venn diagram. Yeah. And where the three areas of school, environment, and individual intersect, that's where we should be working, not just making better schools, but actually changing family life. Yes. And, yes. And you know the impact that we would have to have all children coming from primary schools into secondary at their chronological age, but that would be huge. I mean, my niece is uh, just started secondary education, and she, she, I think she reads probably a book a day, and um, she is really, really um, thrilled to be there. But her peers. Are just all over the place, you know. As well, she's going to um, um, Springwood in Kings Lynn. Oh yes, goodness. Yes, so the family circle's gone round. Yes, it is. Yeah, which is really interesting because because they, um, the child's grandparents, not us, we're aunt and uncle. The child's grandparents were saying private education, private education, and I'm saying don't waste your money. Mm. Because, you know, a, a, a reasonable secondary school, a good school like Springwood, will cost you now, but you'll get four or five or six good GCSEs, which is all that you require in life. You know, that you don't need 10 GCSEs in this world. You, no. need, you need six or seven at most, and then good foreign holidays, travel, books, and all the cultural capital things. Uh, and yeah. my brother listens to me, fortunately. I was just going to ask you, I mean, am I off beam? I don't come across that much deep thinking in terms of our educational, say, educational yeah. publications that are going yeah. on at the moment. It's very difficult to find anything, actually. I mean, 
that's just collapsed. I mean, there's not much good coming out of the system at the moment because the academic community, for all its faults, you know, is a major source and people, mm. but unfortunately nobody's reading it because they want technical manuals. Mm. Yeah, that's what that's what the publishers are saying. You know, how does this work in practice? What can you tell us about the way in which we're going to get improve things by using your methodologies? And that is, and so we're moving away from books as intellectual engagement into books as do it yourself. The problem with this podcast, and effectively, I'm going to stop recording, is we've opened so many avenues up. We could have had a podcast on each of them, but the the, the analogy I was going to throw in, and I thought, no, I'm not. It's too strong. I think education in the in England is paralleled by Haig's leadership in the First World War, which is, uh, you know, sort of throw them into the trenches and uh, a massive uh, level of attrition. And then... uh, We can actually measure that attrition, aren't we? 40% of of young teachers leave the profession within two or three years. That's that's the trenches. It's a perfect analogy. I'm not overly struck with the terms of education as warfare. But, uh, um, But certainly we need new ways of conducting campaign. I think it's just that we need to look at successful um, systems in terms of very crude measures, but also looking at the deeper aspects of them and saying, if, if we compare ourselves with these people, if we have some humility in the system, for heaven's sake, yes, then we'll find that actually we might be able to find something worthwhile exploring. John, it's as always a delight and a pleasure. Thank you Thank so you. much. And, Great podcast where John's brought an expansive perspective on leading education in these times. The next podcast, the December one, will feature Dave McPartlin, a primary head from the Northwest, but certainly a primary head with a difference. <laughs>